chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave the names uh, for Daniel, the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not devile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king who hath appointed your meat and your drink, for why should he see your face worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, prove thy servants... I beseech thee ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenances of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat, as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter, and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all of the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. <clears throat> the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing over the sermon today. Father, we come before you again and ask for your blessing as we study your word today. Pray that we would be able to see the realities of right worship and faith in God, that we would uh, be urged to 
not follow after the mistakes of Israel or of Babylon, and that we would be able to walk in righteousness before you by the power of the Holy Spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, uh, next time I preach, we're probably going to be in the same chapter. This is probably going to be a part one of this, this chapter here because there's a lot to unpack here in this first chapter. Um, in order to understand what's going on here in Daniel chapter one, we have to understand what was going on in Israel and Judah at this time and to see what was going on with Babylon. The story of Daniel kind of opens without much context. You're just sitting there all of a sudden and you read in the first verse, um, in the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came unto Jerusalem and besieged it and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, to Nebuchadnezzar. And it just kind of says that, and then it moves on with the story of Daniel. There's a lot to what's going on here with the beginning of the book of Daniel. This particular event that's, talking, that's talked about here, Daniel's captivity, and the, ultimately the captivity of Israel led away into Babylon, occurred in the second glory days of the Babylonian Empire. So the Babylonian Empire, if you remember was originally established all the way back around the, the days of Noah. That was the foundations of Babel, as it was called then. And if you remember, we'll look at this here in a minute, but Nimrod was the uh, main king image during the days of Babel. And this was the days of Noah. And we're going to look at that here in just a minute. But this event that occurred here was right before the coming of Christ. A few hundred years before that, it was around 597 B.C. is when this event with Daniel occurred. So this event happened after Israel was in Egypt, you know, after Abraham, after all of that. This was right before the coming of Christ, about 600 years before the birth of Christ. But long before this, over a millennia before this event occurred, the mother of the current Babylonian empire was established in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, verse 1, it tells us that the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, the reason we're looking at this is because this here is the foundation of all pretty much all pagan ideologies that existed in the world and still exist in the world today, right here, these few verses. Babel was the mother of all pagan religions. The Babylonian mystery religions, as they were called, first were developed here and then found their perfection later during the time of Daniel. The Freemasons, for instance, find their beginnings in Babylon, they'll, they'll credit that oftentimes. Babylon is some of their foundations. You'll also see uh, many of the uh, Egyptian ideologies have root in Babel. 
from the days of Noah. So much of these pagan concepts, false god, pantheism, all of these ideas found root at the Tower of Babel. And what, do you, what does it say here in Genesis 11? It tells us that the entire earth was of one language. So you have to figure this was right after the flood. You had Noah and his three sons and their wives get off the ark. They all clearly spoke the same language. They were a family. And quickly after the flood, they began to have lots of children and their children had lots of children. And you got to remember at this time, everyone lived a very long time. Everybody lived almost a thousand years. So with the long life and the prolific amounts of children that they would have during that time, the earth grew in population dramatically. And so still during the days of Noah, you had Babel find its beginnings. And from our understanding, it was a, uh, a descendant of Ham, Nimrod was, from my understanding anyways, was a descendant of of Ham. He was the grandson of Ham. Nimrod was. And he was the main leader of the Tower of Babel, the building of the Tower of Babel, and the pagan ideologies that came out of it. Now you say, well, how could so many pagan concepts come about so quickly? I mean, if you think to, if you thought that you were the only people on earth, for instance, and you're Christians. How could your great-grandchild establish a pagan empire? Wouldn't they know better? Especially after God, the true God that you serve, just killed everyone in the world because of their wickedness. You would think that people would know better than that. Well, it's not that Nimrod didn't know. As a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't say this here specifically, but other historical documents like the writings of Josephus, some non-inspired like apocryphal works, things like that, old historical documents, go into more detail about the Tower of Babel and Nimrod specifically. And it says, Josephus mentions this, that Nimrod specifically was rebelling against the God of the Bible. Josephus details and says that Nimrod told the people of Babel that their happiness and their success in the land of, of uh, Shinar, the city of Babel that had been built, was not to be uh, attributed to the hand of God. And as a matter of fact, he said that they were to be bitter against God for the destruction of the world. The Tower of Babel, according to Josephus and others, was a direct attempt to reach heaven so that they could smite God for his injustice upon man during the flood. They saw it as an affront to mankind. So they were fully aware of God, the flood, and what he had done, but they were in rebellion against God. They wanted to destroy God. In Genesis chapter 9, right before this story, when Noah had gotten off the ark, God had told Noah, he said he blessed Noah and his sons and said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. God had told Noah and his sons to go fill the earth. But here in Genesis 11, we see that the earth was of one language. And as they came to Shinar, they said, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make ourselves a name lest we be scattered into all the earth. So 
So the Bible does verify that it was direct rebellion against the command of God to Noah because they were to fill the whole earth and to replenish it. But here they said, no, we don't want to be filled in the whole earth. We don't want to be scattered abroad. We want to be united in rebellion against God and to establish a city that will reach into heaven. But regardless of their motives and how much was in direct rebellion to God, even though it very clearly was, we're told that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And verse 6 of chapter 10 says, The Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have one language, and this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. In my study of this, I found there was a lot of pagan historical documents that document this same exact account. It's very fascinating. You gotta figure these people were pagans. At the time, they worshiped many gods. They did not worship the God of the scriptures. They were in direct rebellion to him. They hated him, but they did worship other gods. And throughout pagan literature and historical documents, you'll find a story of the gods growing angry. And in some city that they once all lived in together in harmony, God, the gods scattered them abroad across the earth and confused their language. So even the pagans and their pagan historical documents remember what God did to them on this day. What's fascinating is as I was studying, and, and there is some debate as to the timeline here, but Noah lived over 900 years old. And most likely during Noah's late life, Abraham was born and lived. And there's even some documents that signify that Abraham and Noah knew each other. And Noah taught Abraham of the things of God, which is fascinating. Whether or not it's true is kind of irrelevant, but they did live around the same time, depending on your understanding of the biblical timeline. So while all these men lived for so long, there were the true and faithful, and there was the, the pagan living together just as it is today. And so we see here God's uh, faithfulness, because as we know, the scriptures are a story of God's uh, providential plan to redeem a people to himself. We see that from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, when God promises to destroy the serpent through the seed of the woman, that Christ would one day come. That was in Genesis 3. The whole, the whole scriptures are this story. Over and over, God is going to rescue and save a people for himself. That's the story of the Bible. And here with the, the, the story of Babel in Genesis, we see the same theme. God wanted to scatter the nations so that Israel could be established, so that he could send them into captivity in Egypt one day and lead them into the promised land and scatter the pagan nations that were there and magnify his name and that Bethlehem would be established so that one day the Christ child could be born in Bethlehem and redeem a people. So all the way back in Genesis, when the pagan king Nimrod wanted to smite God with his tower of might and paganism. God destroyed them and scattered them because of that, but he also was fulfilling his ultimate purpose, which was to create a world full of nations that could one day 
bring forth the Messiah in Israel. And now we come up seeing the, the foundations of Babylon, which Nebuchadnezzar very much carried forward these ideologies of old Babylon. There's historical documents to, to signify that Nebuchadnezzar actually rebuilt the Tower of Babel. There is some belief that he did that. He was very much a fan of ancient Babel. He worshiped false gods. We see this throughout the book of Daniel. And it was only through God's might and the prophecies of Daniel that brought Nebuchadnezzar to worship the one true God. And we'll see that uh, as we go later through the book of Daniel. But here, when we come up to the time right before the events of Daniel chapter 1, we're talking about 50 years before the events of Daniel chapter 1. We see God's people in Daniel 1 being given over to this extremely pagan nation. An extremely pagan nation being given dominion over the people of God. Well, what caused this to happen? Well, 50 years or so before in Israel or, or Judah at the time, there was great rebellion against God. Around 687 BC, a man came to power in Israel named Manasseh. And this man was an extremely arrogant and wicked king. You gotta figure, again, about 50 years before the events of Daniel 1. If you would turn to 2 Kings 23. 2 Kings 23. I want to read a little bit here leading up to Daniel 1 about this King Manasseh. Second Kings 20, is it 23? I want to make sure I give you the right reference. Nope, 21. Sorry, 2 Kings 21. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and five years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. After the abominations of the heathens whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel, he built up the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, he reared up altars for Baal. He made a grove, as did Ahab, king of Israel. He worshipped the hosts of heaven, and he served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. He built altars for the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with spirits and wizards and he wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord and provoked him to anger. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, only if they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they hearkened not. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spake by his servant the prophet, 
saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord of Israel, Behold, I am bring, bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever hears of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance, and I will deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done that which was evil in my sight. And it provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came forth out of Egypt, even unto this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Beside his sin, wherewith he made Judah to sin and doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. The rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sins that he sinned, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? So to top off the wickedness of Manasseh, historical Jewish documents say that he killed his own grandfather and his own grandfather was Isaiah, the prophet. This man was extremely wicked. So wicked were his deeds during this 50 plus year reign that Israel largely forgot about the works of the Lord. We're told historically that dust piled up upon the altars of God, that the, the books of the law were burned that the Old Testament books that were, were there, that the scribes and the, not the scribes, but the scrolls of the law were, were burned and destroyed. And he brought judgment down upon their heads because of this. His acts were what led Israel into captivity in Daniel chapter one. So when we read about that first sentence that Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem and God gave them over to his hands, you might be like, well, why would God do that? This is why God did that. They forsook the promises and the covenant that God had made with them, and they gave themselves over to idolatry. Even so, in all of this, though, God's promise that the line of Judah, which God gave over to Babylon at this time, that the line of Judah would come, the Christ child, he still preserved that and one day delivered Israel out of the power of Babylon and restored them again to their land. God's providential history throughout all of this is incredible. So even in their wickedness, though God judged them and held them accountable to that, God still restored them again so that the prophecy of Christ could come true. We're actually told in the very beginning of Matthew, it highlights the captivity of Babylon. It says in the, the Matthew 1, during the genealogy of Christ, it says that Jacob beget Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. So the generations from Abraham to David are 14. From David to the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. So in that we see God's providence throughout the entire event from Abraham through Babylon and Egypt all the way to the coming of Christ. But shortly after this wicked king, Manasseh, we know that right before, <clears throat> right before 
the destruction of Israel and Judah, that God had brought about King Josiah. So after Manasseh had done all of this in Israel and God promised the destruction of Israel and Judah because of this, Josiah became king. And we're, we're told that he was a child of eight years old when he became king. So he inherited a throne that was in the midst of all of this paganism as an eight-year-old boy. We don't know exactly how old he was, but we're told in 2 Kings chapter 23 about Josiah. And it's very interesting if you turn just two, two pages ahead or a couple pages ahead there in 2 Kings. We were in 21 looking at Manasseh. But in chapter 23, and this is just a few short years before the destruction of Israel through the captivity of Babylon. It says that the king stood by a pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies. And we're told that he did this because he was restoring the temple. He had ordered the, the temple to be restored. Okay, now this is in this pagan empire that he's inherited. And during that restoration, it says that one of the scribes, as they were clearing things out, found a undestroyed copy of the law of God. And they brought it to this young king, Josiah, and they said, you know, Lord, we've found this old copy of the law that no one reads anymore. And he read it to the king, and it says that the king was distraught when he had heard how Israel had sinned against God. He looked around his kingdom, and he saw that they weren't following anything that the Lord had told them. And so it says in, in 2 Kings 23, verse 3, that he stood by a pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart, with all their soul, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood to covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the door to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron. And he carried the ashes unto Bethel and he put down the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense. And in the places round about Jerusalem, them also that burn incense unto Baal, to the sun, to the moon, and to the planets, and to all the hosts of heaven. And he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem unto the brook Kidron, and he burned it at the brook Kidron, stamped it, small the powder, and he cast the powder upon the graves of the children of the people. And he broke down the houses of the Sodomites that were by the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the grove. And he brought the priests out of the cities of Judah, and he defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense, from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were in the entering of the gates of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on the man's left hand at the gate of the city. It says, Nevertheless, the priests of the high places came not up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate of the unleavened bread among their brethren. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Molech. And he took away the horses that the king of Judah had given to the son at the entering in of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the suburbs. And he burned the chariots of the son 
with fire. And the altars that were on the top of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made, in the two courts of the house of the Lord did the king beat down, and he brake them down from thence, and he cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had builded for Ashtaroth, the abominations of the Zidians, and for Chemosh, the abominations of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon, the king defiled. And he broke in pieces the images, and he cut down the groves, and he filled their places with the bones of men. And it continues on from there, discussing how he destroyed and slew the priests of these pagan gods. And he commanded the people in verse 21 to keep the Passover unto the Lord, your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. Surely there was not holding such a Passover from the days of the judges that judged Israel, nor in all the days of the king of Israel, nor of the king of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, wherein the Passover was holding to the Lord and Jerusalem. Verse 25 says, And like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his might, according to the law of Moses. Neither after him arose there any like him. But it says in verse 26, that notwithstanding the Lord turned not from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah because of Manasseh. So regardless of what King Josiah did, which was wonderful and righteous deeds, the Lord did not turn from his wrath against Judah. The Lord had promised to destroy them, to give them over to Babylon because of what Manasseh had done, and the Lord was faithful in that. This teaches us here that we need to be careful. These were God's people, right? And they walked in rebellion to God. And even during their repentance, God still punished them for their previous wickedness. It should be a sombering warning to us that we need to be circumspect in how we walk. Oftentimes today, just like the kings of Judah, we let the groves and the altars of the pagan gods of this world be builded up in our own hearts and our minds. We compromise our churches and our doctrines. We see the same woke garbage going on here in Judah that Josiah had to deal with. What did it say there in, in one of the verses? It said that he tore down the houses of the Sodomites that had been built next to the house of the Lord. Same kind of garbage goes on today. How many churches today bow down before that wicked agenda in the name of love? But in reality, it's the name of rebellion against the order of the Most High God. It's the same spirit of Babel that cries out against the works of God and says that we will ascend to the highest places. And this is the historical setting in Israel leading up to that captivity that we find in Daniel chapter 1. After Josiah, there were a couple more short-lived kings who immediately undid everything Josiah did and reverted Judah right back to all the paganism. And they only were a few short years, and that's when Babylon came and took Jerusalem and Judah into captivity. And we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his gods. And he brought the vessels into the treasury house 
of his God. So next time we look at this, Daniel chapter 1. <clears throat> the sermon, of course, was called Faith in Captivity. And what we see here first is God's faithfulness to his people. That even in the midst of this captivity, even in the midst of all of this, God was faithful to keep his providential plan in place. God was faithful to one day deliver them. God was faithful that in this captivity, as we read in Daniel 1, there were still faithful remnants. Daniel and his friends were still faithful to God. And we will look at their faithfulness. Today was more on God's faithfulness to them. But the next time we, we look at chapter 1, we'll see their faithfulness to the Lord, how they withstood against the pagan ideologies of Babylon. And we'll look at Nebuchadnezzar and his relationship with them. So what's a few things that we can take away from this? First, regardless of the wicked attempts of man's purposes, God will always have his way. We saw that in Genesis. We see that here in Daniel 1. Regardless of man's wicked purposes, God will always find his way. He will destroy the efforts to overthrow his kingdom and his plans. Secondly, God establishes the righteous and he carries forth his purposes. God is faithful to his purpose and he does not abandon his people. He establishes the righteous. When we walk in righteousness before God by the power of the Holy Spirit, he promises to keep our feet steady on the path. He completes the good works that he has begun in us. He says that he's faithful to complete it. We do not have to fear abandonment. God will always see us through. Regardless of the ups and downs that we see Israel participate in over the years, God preserved that, that lineage of Christ, regardless of their paganism and regardless of their obedience. He established the lineage of Christ so that Christ could be established upon that throne of David as he had promised to Abraham and to David. Third, we must be careful to not become like the wicked kings of Judah who left the book of the law to gather dust as we pursue our own thoughts and our own desires about God and how he ought to be worshiped. You notice the kings of Judah didn't tear down the temple of God. It says that they rather used the temple of God to worship the gods that they thought needed to be worshiped. Right? They didn't destroy the temple of God. They misused the temple of God. And that's what we do today. Oftentimes, the churches in America misuse the temple of God. And we let that book of the law gather dust that tells us how we should be worshiping God, how we should be living, how we should be thinking. We leave that over in the corner gathering dust. So let's not be like the wicked kings of Judah and incur the wrath of Almighty God upon his people because he tells us those whom he loves, he rebukes and chastens. We're told be zealous therefore and repent. And God does it in his own time. There was a 56 year window there of Manasseh living in complete rebellion to God, and he died long before he saw the judgment of God. But the judgment of God came. Just because we see wicked men flourishing now does not mean God's judgment is not coming upon them and upon his uh, unbelieving and disobedient church as well. So for the Christian man and woman today, let's be established firm as God tells us to be in Psalm 1, which is to meditate on his law day and night, that we can be like a tree firmly established by living waters and yield fruit in its season. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy towards us. I pray that you would help us learn from these Old Testament stories of Israel and Judah and the carrying away into Babylon. I pray that we would always keep before us 
a reminder that you do work in the affairs of men, that you are not silent, you don't sleep, you don't, you don't not see what's going on around us. And Lord, you do bring your judgment and your chastisement and your, uh, sanctif your sanctifying hand into our lives. Lord, you promise that you will strengthen us and sanctify us and make us more into the image of your beloved Son. And that's a difficult process sometimes, Lord. And I pray that you give us the strength to bear up under it, that we would be faithful servants and obedient to you in all that we do. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.